0: This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710
1: Sports app and 710sports.com.
0: Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Timing could not have been worse for the Mariners to blow a couple of games in the ninth inning. Jonah Heim, suddenly a Mariner killer. They were in position to sweep the Texas Rangers who are one of the worst teams in baseball, performing something. They're bad. They're really bad. And instead, Jonah Heim walks off the Seattle Mariners in back-to-back games. Yeah. Jonah who?
2: Jonah who? Jonah Hex? No, not the movie starring Josh Brolin with Megan Fox in it for some reason. We're talking about some other rando who, for whatever reason, Danny, has success against the Mariners. And while it's just a couple of games, blah, 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 I'm mad legitimately actually mad man. at this team. This is the first time I feel like I've been mad at them. I mean, I've been disappointed in them, but your standards are higher now. You can't be losing to these losers.
0: Let's let's get it started. Because some people are mad at Jerry DiPoto. Mm-hmm. Some people are mad at Jerry DePoto and say, this is what you get when you mess with the chemistry of the team. And oh, by the way, that bullpen that's been a strength, it's the bullpen that forked it over. Diego Castillo, mm. who was acquired to be your closer, and in some ways... People arguing was an upgrade over Kendall Graveman. He came in and pitched great the first game and then came in in the back to back games. And all I could hear was Paul Gallant's voice ringing in my ears, reading about how his, how out, the, the fact that if he was in better condition, he might be able to pitch better in consecutive games. He gives up the, the game losing home run on Saturday. Mariners lose five to four in extra innings. And then yesterday it was Eric Swanson who surrenders back to back home runs in the Mariners. Are you mad at Jerry over the bullpen changes?
2: I'm not mad at Jerry over this because I I think you have to look at the trade from the perspective of what did the Mariners really need the second half of the year. Their bullpen, I think we still should consider a strength, even if it is without Kendall Graveman, because I don't think Diego Castillo is a huge downgrade from him. And I also think that when you've got Paul Sewald, Eric Swanson, I mean, there are some good arms in this bullpen. Obviously, they did not get it done on Saturday maybe because of the reason, Danny, that you you mentioned was one of the reasons that the Rays maybe moved on from him. And I I, I look at those two games, and, and they shouldn't have lost them, but they couldn't score in those games either. And they had plenty of opportunities to score. So it's a team loss to me. And the bats, which have been really just not good this season, came back to bite them in those two games. They should have been scoring what they scored on Friday night against Texas with
0: all the opportunities that they had. Nine runs as opposed to three runs or five runs this comes down to a question of was this sort of thing bound to happen was this sort of thing bound to happen when you've got a team that was nine games above 500 despite having a negative run differential a team that was 23 and eight in one run games a team that was hitting better with runners in scoring position than runners when when the bases were empty like all, Was this something that was bound to happen, or was this something that was caused by... Because it wasn't just the change in the bullpen, right? It was the gut punch to the clubhouse. I, I think that's what we're all still trying to cycle through and to figure out how much... Because if you had any argument that the Mariners were able to do this because of their skill, that this wasn't a fluke that they were at nine games above five hundred, it was because of the clubhouse culture and the way these guys felt about each other.
2: If it is that, it's lame. Get over it. Get over it. Guess what? Abraham Toro's 9 for 18 since he joined you. He's had two three-hit games. He has two home runs. He has three doubles. 9 for 18. That is better than the majority of the hitters on this team do on a nightly basis. And if you are not looking at that guy and his performance, his addition to the lineup, and acting like that's been a plus, it's been a net plus. We've only seen Kendall Graven pitch once for Houston since he's come in, and it was good. It was one and a third, and it was against the San Francisco Giants, and he struck out the and he struck out three batters at the four that he faced. But... Abraham Toro's been really good since he joined you. So can't
0: can't change how you feel though, right? If yeah, the players don't so care if, about
2: your facts, that's if, true. If
0: if 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 the clubhouse feels that they were undermined, if the clubhouse feels like they were sold out, if the clubhouse has their collective daubers down because Graveman was shipped out despite everything he did, we can talk a lot about how it shouldn't be that way and that. But did you mess with something that was working? You've lost four of five now since the trade, right? You've lost four of the five games you've played since then. And I agree. The Toro part makes it confusing because you can't say that, oh, Jerry's goofed in terms of baseball value, right? I think both short and long term, you're seeing Abraham Toro could be a huge part of your team going forward. But that idea that this, this knocked a team that was feeling really good about itself and that was winning in part because of that chemistry, that that's been altered. Do we give them this weekend then? This was the weekend where they they, they figure it out. They get a period. Yeah. They get a period. Well, it's not going to get any easier because Texas was where you were supposed to get right. Mm, I know. Right? You had a good home stand followed by a downer of a conclusion. And then you go on the road and you're like, good luck, man. You got three against Texas and you better make your hay there because then you go to Tampa and then you've got four games against the Yankees. Both of these two teams, by the way, are gearing up for what they believe are playoff runs. And the Yankees are going to be desperate when you're playing them. Yes,
2: they will, and I would imagine they will also be testy, sort of the way that things ended in the last series, because you were braying at them as you won that last game of the series that they took two or three from you against. Look, get over it. It's, I understand, hard to lose somebody in the clubhouse, but they have to realize what they are. Don't they look at themselves in the mirror and say, yes, we are a good baseball team. We are not a World Series contender. Is is that unfair to ask a a, a sports team to say about itself, is it really a belief that every clubhouse with a team above 500 thinks to itself halfway through a year, we have a legitimate chance at a title because they don't, they never did. They can't score. They don't have the runs to match with Houston. They don't have the scoring ability to match with, with Boston, Uh, you know, Toronto, if they had any pitching, they can score better than you. That's what I wonder about, and maybe that's easier said by me watching than being in that clubhouse, but if you're being realistic with yourself, I think you have to think, yeah, this has been a fun year. We're playing really well, but I mean,
0: we're going to be here for a couple of years to come, and we want to have better chances in those seasons. What's fascinating about how things have turned out here, and maybe fascinating is sort of the, the anthropologists look at it, and even that word will enrage people, but I find it fascinating. You can argue that Jerry goofed and you can equally passionately and and argue that he absolutely has been vindicated by what happened. The people that think Jerry goofed are going to rely upon chemistry and how you feel about things and ignore the fact that A, Graveman would have only pitched in at most one of those two losses, right? You can't lay both at at the feet of his absence because he would have pitched Friday in that game and he... He only pitched back-to-back. I think DJ even pointed it out. He only pitched back-to-back four times this year. And he's certainly not pitching three in a row. So even if you say, and he's pitched once for Houston, right? Yep. So so at most you can like, and the guy that they traded for him, Abraham Toro, has, has, has played pretty well. But if you want to say, oh, it was the the camaraderie in the clubhouse, the flip side of this, and you would say that Jerry was absolutely right, is that 23-8 and is an unsustainably good record in close games. Yep. You're not gonna. You're not gonna continue to win three out of four. You're not gonna continue to win three of four one run games.
2: Maybe two that, of three, that, but three of four. Right. That's that's ridiculous. And it's great that they've been able to do it. But yeah, and sometimes this will happen against teams like Texas and players like Jonah Hex. It's still annoying. But
0: yeah. and, and if you're a bad hitting team, you are not going to be able to calibrate and make sure that you get those hits when there's runners in scoring position. A a team that hits better with runners in scoring position than it does in other situations is probably going to see its average with runners in scoring position go down. That's just a statistical reality. Both of those things happened over the weekend. So you could say that Jerry is the one who saw this situation most accurately. And instead of jumping up and down and saying, oh, he ruined things, we should all be saying he got a reliever. In Diego Castillo, that they have three more years of control on, and it looks like he might have a real find in Abraham Toro, the way he's hit here, and he didn't invest more, and he didn't by not making more trades, he didn't put all his eggs in a basket of a cart that was really, if we're being honest, pretty rickety.
2: Yeah, like that annoying one that you get at the grocery store that has the one wheel. Got the that wonky makes a loud third noise. wheel.
0: Yeah, I hate that. Absolutely, it's Danny and Gallant. It's time for us to get to front page news. This, this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 710.
2: Get what you need to know to start your day right now. Well, Seahawks training camp, of course, continues this week. It can be full pads today, and they might have a break when it comes to game numero uno in Indianapolis against the Colts because Carson Wentz, the foot injury that he suffered Late last week, one that he is trying to make sure it will not require surgery. He is resting it, but Danny, this foot injury involves bones, ligaments, whatever's going on. It does not sound great for Carson Wentz, who might have the worst injury luck in the NFL.
0: So, whenever I hear a player is trying to get through something with rest, and he doesn't want to have surgery, what I think to myself is that means he's been told that he probably needs surgery, and he's doing everything he can to avoid it because he knows that means the end of his season. If he plays, at the very least, you're going to have questions about how healthy he is against the Seahawks. And if he doesn't play, which I would say is the more likely outcome here, is that he doesn't end up playing, you've got Jacob Eason making his first NFL start for Frank Reich. Or Sam Ellinger, if Sam Ellinger somehow beats out Jacob Eason. There's no way that'll happen, right? Like, I know people here tend to hate on Eason, and that's not entirely fair, I think. But Sam Ellinger is not an NFL quarterback. He's
2: not an NFL-style quarterback. I am with you on that front, even though I like Ellinger and what he was able to bring to the college level more than I liked what I saw of Jacob Eason, who is your more traditional quarterback we assuming that he could throw the ball yeah but he does that stupid barrel roll thing dude it drives me dude, crazy it I was just so slow stop so slow stop you're not playing star fox this is real life you can't do this okay so whatever the case advantageous for the seahawks i am consistent am i not if someone gets hurt i am cool with it not that i'm cool with the person getting injured i am just cool with what it does for the seahawks and their schedule and you know what that week one game against carson wentz a lot of unknowns if it's against some rookie I'm feeling pretty good about that. We might have an extended preseason. The front oh, page. Although they weirdly aren't that good against backup quarterbacks sometimes. Hopefully that's just a coincidence. Colt McCoy.
0: Yeah, or when Teddy Bridgewater came in for the Saints and they and they routed routed the Seahawks. Brett Hundley. Oh, oh, that's not great. That doesn't make me feel very good. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, I wish I could bet on this, which is a weird. Expression because it's a gambling story. Hmm. Evander Kane's wife, Evander Kane's one of the better players in the NHL. He plays for the San Jose Sharks. Evander Kane's wife has alleged that he gambled on and even insinuated that he affected the outcome of games he played in. That he he bet on games he was wow. playing. Wow. Called him a compulsive gambling addict. Now he's denied it, so we don't know what'll happen. The NHL says it's investigating it. Here's why the story is interesting to me we are headed headlong into legalizing sports gambling all across the country the federal prohibition has been lifted it's going to happen in washington at some point point. and i get why people have done it there's a huge amount of money to be made and leagues themselves who have long tried to keep gambling as far from what they do as possible have said okay we can get some money out of this so we're okay with it like yeah, the nba was the first of the leagues to do it what are we going to do when there's a huge scandal because that's coming like that's going to and and if, that's what i said i wish i could bet that there is going to be a huge gigantic scandal within the next 2 years that makes us rethink the very idea of legalizing sports gambling because unlike other games of chance unlike other games of chance it's much like i think most of us believe that like roulette it's not fixed in the casino craps games the dice are not loaded like they're they're games of chance but they're regulated games of chance if the participants in sports events are in on altering the outcome, it completely changes it. And if anything, we know about the history of gambling in this country is that there are a lot of people who do unsavory things to try and get an edge in that regard. It stands to reason that you're going to have, it's happened at every turn, and that's why sports gambling was illegal in large part. So we can pretend, there is going to be a huge, I don't know if it's this one, but there's going to be one that shakes shakes our country to the core about how it feels about a sport because of a gambling issue. I'm not one to judge people who do, but in my
2: observations of those who like to gamble, very often they do it a lot to the point where they could easily find themselves in a bad situation. I've actually been re-watching an episode of The Sopranos where that exact thing happens with Richie. Uh, who takes advantage of some one of Tony's friends who decides to go gambling with with the boys? That part of it is something that makes it, I think, yeah, definitely possible for this to take place in a sport. And of all the sports, I, I think hockey is the one where it's most likely they don't make Why? the most money. I think that yeah. one of five players can affect more things than maybe one of fifty three in That's a football game. True.
0: I think football is the hardest to affect. I think football is the hardest to change.
2: Basketball also, I feel like it would be too. It would be so obvious.
0: Too. It's if, the one where it's happened the most though.
2: Yeah, true, but mostly with refs, right? Like, have, Do we do we There's know been, the last time they, it's happened with a player?
0: This, well, Hadaki Smith, Stevan Smith down at Arizona State did it, and one of the games was against an awful, maybe the worst Washington basketball team I've ever seen. I think that's the last one I remember where it was a player, but yeah, they ended up taking the game off the board, and it was turned out to be some amateur, uh, I think it was like a younger, like a college-age better that was trying to get it to throw it but yeah that's when most of them most of them have involved basketball that is front page news now it's time to get the professor in here training camps open across the league it's time for our morning drive John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way
3: battle and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything Everything NFL NFL. from the professor
2: John John Clayton. Clayton. They
3: scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football.
2: It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny Danny and Gallant. Gallant. Professor, things aren't looking very good for one Carson Wentz, and we'll see if he's actually able to go against the Seahawks in week one, but Indy did make a move this weekend. They signed Brett Hundley, the guy that we were talking about who came in as a backup to beat the Seahawks a couple of years ago. Do you expect Hundley to be the starter, or is it Jacob Eason? Do you think that would be under center if Wentz can't go?
3: Mm, I think it probably end up being uh, Hundley be- because if that's going to be the case, I mean he's got more experience. I mean Eason again, did some good things last week in practice, and you know that that could be encouraging. But boy, I tell you, the Wentz thing is just staggering because uh, you know first off he's holding off having surgery because he's going to just rehab and see where it goes. But uh, you kind of get to—I the- mean, two things are going to be bad about this for the Colts and Wentz. Number one, even if he's able to play the first game of the season, he's not going to have any training camp. And I know that the Seahawks got a break in one way with the schedule because here's Carson Wentz coming off a bad season – going to a new team, and you get him the first game of the season, and even though the game's on the road against Seattle, I mean, you get him in the most vulnerable position because he's still learning the offense. Now he barely knows the offense, I mean he only had two, like one or two practices, and if that's going to be the case, uh, I think he's definitely going to struggle much more than he did last year. But I still get kind of get the feeling that he still might need surgery on that foot, and if that's going to
0: be the case, they're in bad, bad shape. What do you think the injury is, John? Does it sound like a Jones fracture to you? It's ligaments and bone, is kind of mm-hmm. what I've heard described, that it involves both. To me, I, I I think that does, and those things are really, really tricky to, to deal with.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering if it's a Liz Frank, too. Could that be a possibility? Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh no, the Liz Frank. Reaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Liz Frank would be—it uh, Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's going to be season-ending, endi- uh, so yeah, it might be a Jones fracture. I mean, they're not saying what it is, and I don't know if they got the official report from Robert Anderson, the doctor, yet. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't sound good because, I mean, he goes in, he feels something pop. And then the next thing you know, he's got more pain and it gets worse over the next day. And so he has to then sit out. So uh, it doesn't, that doesn't sound good whatsoever.
0: John, we, we, we know that Jamal Adams is not practicing. That probably wouldn't be practicing anyway, even if he was signed. Dwayne Brown is watching, too. Should we start to worry about the the guys who want extensions in terms of when they're going to get under contract?
3: Too early to worry. I mean, it's it's one where, uh, you know, you're still in your first week of practice. You know, there still seems to be optimism that they can get something done. And, you know, I, I didn't think it was going to get done the first week or I mean, because I thought maybe it would get done like seven or eight days in the training camp. And that could be the case maybe by Wednesday, Thursday, they can get something done. I mean, obviously, they want to get Jamal done first because then you see what cap room is going to be left and where you can go with everything else as far as uh, Dwayne Brown and that. But uh, I don't. I don't think you need to worry yet. I mean, you can see from practice that his spirit seems to be good. He likes it here, and you know, it's just a matter if, as long as he's not unreasonable in asking for seventeen or eighteen million dollars, I think something's going to get done and reasonably quick.
2: Professor, let's shift to a story that surprised me. This comes out of Buffalo. The Bills, I guess, wants a one hundred percent paid by taxes stadium and are considering moving to Austin, Texas, if it is not done for them. Austin's apparently unaware of it. Their city council at least is saying that. and The Bills are disputing that they want that much money. Could you see Buffalo actually moving?
3: I guess it's a possibility because it's not only – are the, the owners asking for a football stadium 100% financed, but they're also asking for a new hockey rink too 100% financed? And I can't imagine that Western Buffalo right now has the money to be able to do that. And so it's like uh, it's, it's kind of a big stalemate, and you would hope that the ownership. Would be willing to put something up. If not, it's like uh, they are going to move. But then also the idea of moving to Austin, which of course, uh, I'm glad you brought up the idea that they they said they have no idea what's going to do. Do you think Jerry Jones is going to let that happen? Absolutely not,
2: right. (laughs) But (laughs) also the second class citizen Texans, like, do you think they're they're already paranoid that no one cares about them? That's going to make it even worse. Yeah, but again, it's like Jerry Jones is not going to allow
3: any extra team to move into Texas. I mean, whether it's going to be Austin or San Antonio or whatever. And it's like, and how, how are you going to, I mean, you know, Austin's a a college
0: town. How's that going to work? Yeah, I don't, I don't see it working. And actually for as valuable as NFL franchises have been, Mm -hmm. I would think that the last two and maybe even three moves, I don't know how the Las Vegas one's going to work out. And that's kind of a different market because you have so many people from out of town and it's still relatively close to Oakland, but both of the relocations in LA I mean, I think that there are questions there about how strong of a football. The Rams have been really good. They, things have stacked up with their schedule and the stadium being delayed, but neither of those moves have really gone seamlessly in my view.
3: Yeah, because well, it cost so much for the stadium to be built, so much extra, even though there was no public financing of the stadium. And so, you know, the Rams owner had to pay for everything. And I don't yeah, know. Yeah, they what don't pay they, for anything. Yeah, California. what did it, like 3 or $4 million uh, as far as what it ended up costing? So that was, or $1 billion dollars. And so it's like, that wasn't good. And, of course, uh, the big thing with the Chargers is that nobody cares. There's Nobody I'm, cares. Nobody cares about the Chargers. Nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, the Rams, I mean, they they have good interest. And, of course, they're a good team. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, obviously last year with nobody being in the stadium, I mean, each team took a big hit. And then on top of it with the Chargers, you've got an ownership issue because you've got a sister that wants to sell. She's suing uh, the Spanoses, trying to uh, you know get them to sell the franchise because of the losses and everything else and the deficit on the team. So it's a a pretty tough situation. And again, the reason that the Chargers moved is San Diego wouldn't do anything for him, wouldn't give one help whatsoever. It's kind of like Oakland and the Raiders. They offered no help in trying to get uh, some new stadium built. And those two stadiums in uh, Oakland and in Uh, san diego were just god awful because of how old they were professor
0: we always enjoy it we will look forward to talking to you throughout this week okay sounds good he is the professor john clayton you can follow his coverage of the seahawks 710sports.com coming up next well we're going to haul the mariners into court the case against jerry depoto's deadline deals and maybe a defense one of us is going to offer that that's coming up next you are listening to Danny and Gallant, powered through the Alaska Airlines Studios on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Hear ye, hear ye!
2: That is a gavel, Just impromptu using a mug that happens to be here. As that, Danny, it is time to bring things to court, as we sometimes do on this very radio, very radio program of ours. Jerry DePoto's trade. Jerry DePoto's
0: deadline deals. Do you want to play
2: prosecution? Do you want to play defense?
0: I think my my honest opinion leans more toward... I I believe in Jerry's side of it. Like I, I, I think that Jerry did the right thing in getting players that extended beyond this season not giving up prospects that they think will be a big part of things going forward. But I'm willing to take the other side. The mark of a good lawyer is to be able to professionally argue... Things that it's not necessarily your own opinion. You're an advocate on the behalf of your clients. So if 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 the people would like me to prosecute uh, Jerry DePoto for trades against the Mariners best interests in 2021, I'm willing to take on that case.
2: OK, you can do that. I'm going to present an argument in defense of Jerry DePoto. Yes, they have not played well since the trade took place. Yes, they blew two saves on Saturday and Sunday against the Texas Rangers. Things are not looking great right now. But, Danny, Abraham Toro, who the Mariners did acquire, is 9-for-18 with three doubles, two home runs, and has looked very much to be a much-needed upgrade for Danny, an offense that still features a negative run differential as this season progresses and does not seem like it is going to get that much better by the end of the year, unless they added someone like Toro.
0: Point of order, Your Honor. I want to point out that the defense went first here, which is against the the general (laughs) standards and judicial practices in this country. This is my court. (laughs) The prosecution is willing to overlook this fact. We just want it noted for the record. (laughs) Also, did the Mariners not complete an incredible comeback from a seven-run deficit? against the Houston Astros the day before this trade was announced. And in fact, the parameters of this trade very well may have been agreed to the very night that that victory occurred. Since then, your Mariners, these this team has lost 4 of 5. And I would point to, as much as you want to trot out the production of Abraham Toro, the feelings in the clubhouse. This was a team that was feeling good about itself. This was a team that had won 4 of 5 in a crucial stand against the two teams they were chasing. And that morning was forced to get up and reckon with the fact that a guy who was at the heartbeat of this clubhouse, who had been a big part of what they were building, wasn't just gone. He was traded to the team they were playing. Since then, they've lost four or five. The, SPAC, the facts speak for themselves, Your Honor. This this team was delivered an absolute gut punch by the very man that was entrusted to protect and had said he would improve their rights to perform this season, that he would give them more at this trade deadline, and instead ended up taking one of the crucial cogs away from this team.
2: Okay, Danny, but look, when that comeback took place, who was the one that was creating said comeback? Was it the guy who was pitching at the end of it, or was it the offense that rallied in that game? An offense that does not rally very often unless there happen to be some runners on base. They struggle. They struggle so much. This team needed a bat. For the second half of the year, what they have done to this point by winning as many games as they have, despite an offense that really doesn't score a lot, means that they needed one. Maybe they needed another one, honestly, if we're talking about for this year. Meanwhile, is your bullpen all of a sudden just void of talent? You have Diego Castillo. Okay, that guy was good in Tampa Bay. Maybe he's not quite Kendall Graveman. Maybe he's better than Kendall Graveman. He's definitely under team control for longer than Kendall Graveman. He's younger. You also still have Paul Sewald. You still have Eric Swanson. You have guys in your bullpen who you look at, and they're pretty good. You're also going to have more guys in your bullpen that come back from Tommy John surgery, like Ken Giles, who I'm not the biggest fan of, after this coming season. So, future-wise for your bullpen, you're looking in solid shape. The rest of this season, Kendall Graveman should not be a subtraction that all of a sudden makes this thing go off the tracks. You mentioned the clubhouse dynamic. Boo-hoo! Get over it. This is baseball. Guys get traded all the time. And while you might be upset with what Jerry did, you have a responsibility as a player to get over it. You've had a week. Maybe this was them getting their feelings out on Saturday and Sunday. And hopefully they can recenter and refocus because they need to the rest of this season.
0: Your Honor, the prosecution would like to introduce Exhibit A, Mm. Saturday night's game, in which the very reliever that defense counsel has currently referenced, Diego Castillo, gave up a two-run home run to a guy I'd never heard of. Somebody named Jonah Heim. Jonah Heim hit one. So the very reliever that was brought on to replace and potentially be an upgrade surrendered the lead in in, in the 10th inning. What happened the next day? That's Exhibit B. Sunday, Eric Swanson, another of the relievers, defense counsel just mentioned, as being capable of stepping into it, gave up back-to-back home runs, including a walk-off to the aforementioned Jonah Heim. But really... This case comes down to chemistry. This case comes down to the chemistry that existed in the Mariners' clubhouse. Something that teams spend years trying to find, to develop, to build, and that this Mariners' team had. It was truly a team that was a sum greater than the total of its parts. It's why they were nine games above five hundred, despite having scored, scored fewer runs than they had allowed. It was a team that was thriving because of the way that they built. They, they played off of each other, trusted each other. That chemistry is the reason that this team was 23 and eight. and that chemistry took a huge hit by the subtraction of Kendall Graveman. And again, the results speak for themselves. Four losses in the five games since then. Whatever chemistry they had, whatever chemistry was disrupted by a trade that did it make the Mariners better for 2021, we'll see. Did it make them better for 2022? Absolutely. But that's not the issue at hand. This is a team and a franchise with a 20 year playoff drought that had a chance to end it. And the general manager made a move in which he addressed one of the teams they were chasing's fundamental weakness, helped them out. He didn't even have to fly anywhere, they could just go and pick him up and have lost four or five cents. Your Honor,
2: what the prosecution fails to see here is that the chemistry that was created was creating a fairly weak potion. A fairly weak concoction. This baseball team, though very admirable, is not the same kind of team that we see created with, I don't know, Houston. Where you're essentially seeing combinations of nuclear materials that are capable of creating an atomic bomb. What do the Mariners have? A heap of gunpowder? I would also like to present evidence from our baseball consigliere, Luke Arkins, talking about the appearances at the plate that the Mariners have not had with runners in scoring position. Yes, they've been good with runners in scoring position, but they haven't had many opportunities with runners in scoring position. They have the fourth worst percentage of opportunities with runners in scoring position. Adding Abraham Toro added to this Mariners lineup, and he right now is the guy that is carrying the lineup since he has been brought over from Houston. A team with which he also was being productive against you when you decided to make the trade.
0: How many runs did Abraham Toro drive in? I I have not heard defense counsel mention that. How many runs did he drive in over the three-game series in Texas where the Mariners lost two of three?
2: Well, Your Honor, as I look for the evidence here, because I do not currently have it in front of me as I filibuster here and just continue to speak over and over and over again, over the last seven days, Danny O'Neill, he has had seven runs batted in. And I, I, I checked that. Five runs batted in. I can't read. That does not matter,
0: though. That None just, of those runs were driven in in the t- last two losses. None of those runs were driven in in Texas. Kendall Graveman, how many
2: games has he pitched for the Houston Astros? This one amazing closer since moving w- over w- to Houston. One, one
0: your Honor, an uh, in, in inning and a third in which he appeared. He had an inning plus. What's more important, a player who plays every single day or a player who pitches? I don't know, once a week or something like that. This is not a complicated case, Your Honor. Ask yourself, Seattle. Are you better off than you were five days ago? Ask yourself, are you better off than you were five days ago when you had a Mariners team that was nine games above five hundred, coming off a rousing comeback of a 7-0 victory? And if the answer to that is no, I invite you to seek the most obvious answer. The most obvious answer. Occam's Razor. It is quite simply the trade that took the wind out of Seattle' sails. Mm. You're playing... With
2: feelings, not (laughs) facts. It's Danny Aklat, 710 ESPN Seattle, 710, 710. Who won that one? And how are you feeling after the fact? Because I think Danny and I both are on the page of, look, this trade was necessary for them long term. Is it going to help them out the rest of this year? I don't, I don't think so, but I don't, I don't know that they were going that far this year. Up next, Seahawks cornerback Ugo Amadi joins us. We'll talk to him about this defense, where he figures into the conversation of playing time next season and about just this defense as they now gel for perhaps a better season than we saw from them last year. Don't go anywhere, 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to Danny and Gallant
0: on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Set up to talk to Ugo Amadi. We're going to let you know when he gets here. Seahawks training camp brought to you by Precor Home Fitness. And the Seahawks, through the first sort of chunk of training camp, kind of getting their feet on the ground. We've had a couple of health setbacks. Dwayne Eskridge... Still has a toe injury. He hasn't practiced yet. Ethan Posick has a hamstring injury. He is expected to be practicing and getting out there very, very soon. And then Marquise Blair sounds like his heel got stepped on. So he's a little bit banged up. But so far, things have gone, have gone, been pretty straightforward out there. And there is a decided lack of drama compared to other teams around the league.
2: Yeah. Only bad things can happen at this phase of training camp, right? I mean, Today, if I'm not mistaken, is across the NFL the first day that teams can actually put on full pads, which means that training camp, which I'm going to be heading out to later this afternoon, ought to be a little more entertaining than what we have seen to this point. But you're right. For this part of training camp, the only real question that you have is about Dwayne Brown. It's not even really about Jamal Adams. It feels like things are pretty amicable between both sides, and I don't think the Seahawks are really missing out in not having Jamal Adams practicing with them on the field.
0: What are you nervous about with Brown? Is it the fact that they haven't discussed his contract or Pete said, hey, we're not talking about that right now? Basically, the tone with which he responded to questions
2: about it made it seem like it might be a little bit more delicate and something that Pete maybe doesn't want to address publicly for fear that maybe it creates a little bit of a schism between both sides. The reality is, Dwayne Brown has a lot of leverage in this situation. He's a really good left tackle, and the Seahawks don't have a first round draft pick that would potentially be able to compete with him next offseason. He's got to be the left tackle for a bit.
0: Well, we do have Ugo Amadi who is with us live from Seahawks training camp. Our training camp coverage brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. Ugo, thanks so much for taking the time to join us this morning.
2: Anytime. So, when we look at your role with the Seahawks. You've played nickel corner. You've played on the outside. What, what are you expecting to be doing for the Seahawks and the defense this, off, uh, this coming year? We're going to work to get Ugo Amadi back on in just a moment because right now we, we've got some uh, audio issues. I think right now the levels that are uh, from Seahawks training camp aren't uh, as high as they need to be. So we will, we'll have Ugo back on with us in just a moment.
0: The, having Ugo competing with Marquise Blair as a, as a nickelback, as the fifth defensive back, it should be an opportunity to get competition there because it was Marquise Blair's spot last year. Yep. Ugo, I thought, played exceptionally well in that position and in that competition. I, I I thought he looked really good last year. This should be an opportunity, maybe even to find roles for both of those guys to be able to, to contribute. Yeah,
2: definitely. I mean, right now, I, I, I think you should be open to a lot of different possibilities with that group. You have some young, maybe not the typical size that the Seahawks have been looking for in the past corners, but they have guys that are fast, that can break on the ball, and I, I think Amadi is definitely one of those guys who could be that. And Ugo Amadi joining us again. Sorry about that, Ugo. Appreciate you joining us again. Let's try this a, a second time.
1: Yeah, a little deja vu. I appreciate y'all ha- uh, having me on here, my
0: man. Ugo, this training camp having fans back out there, what's that
1: felt like? Oh, it's everything and more, man. It makes you, you know, uh, be thankful for what you had at first. You know, we kind of took it for granted, you know, with the fans. We have all that energy. Uh, mm-hmm. Going out there on the field is just exciting and thrilling.
2: Hugo, to go back to my first question, you probably want to get on the field with whatever way that you can. But optimally, do you want to be an outside corner? Do you want to be a nickel corner? What do you hope to be this coming season for Seattle?
1: Uh, I just hope to be wherever they need me to be at to put ourselves in a position that's to the win. Right answer. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't really care too much. I just want them, I just want us to win, and you know, that's the whole. Whole, whole point of playing the game is to win so whatever position they need me at that's what i'll do and i give them all
0: ugo what have you learned most through your first two years in the nfl we, we've seen you last year uh playing and thriving in, in a nickel role there were some opportunities you had as a rookie what would you say the biggest lesson that you've taken away from your first two years in the nfl is uh
1: the biggest lesson i've taken away from my first two years was definitely the playing with confidence playing with that swag and um and being yourself, uh, you can't play like somebody that you look up to. You can kind of take bits and pieces and add it to your toolbox, but you got to definitely be yourself uh, because that's the only way you can go out there and strive each and every play is just being yourself and playing with that confidence.
2: And, and you play the position where I think confidence might be the most important because if something bad happens out there, you have to shake it off immediately. And you also have to have the belief that no matter who you're matched up against, that you can stick with that guy.
1: Exactly. That's 100% it. having confidence, having that short-term memory and get back to the next play because something good could happen in the next play you won't even know if you're still dwelling on the last play.
2: Do you have a Google trick w- Do you have a trick to perhaps moving on say something bad happens?
1: Uh no, I don't I don't have no trick to. It. I just I just brush it off and look mm-hmm. look to hope for the what what happens to the next play. Run the football. Something good going to happen when I run to the football. <laughs>
0: We're talking to Ugo Amadi here. Uh, U- Ugo, Trey Brown is someone who, who is new to the team. What have been your impressions of of his play so far?
1: Uh, my impressions on Trey uh, so far, he's very confident. He's very twitchy. Um, and he he loves to be around the ball. You know, whenever he makes a play, he gets really, really jacked up, and that's really huge to see. You know, that's really huge. I mean, he loves what he's doing.
2: It was great to see him when he was at Oklahoma in those Big 12 championship games doing some of the big things that he did. What I've noticed, Dugo, being out there is just how long Akella Witherspoon is. I mean, that guy—he's got all sorts of size. Feels like he could reach up ten feet tall with those arms of his. What have your impressions been of him?
1: Yeah, I've been watching Spoon since he was in college. We played against him in college, and I knew he was a part of a great secondary um, when we were all in college together. And um, I-, I know he could—I knew he could cover, it, especially when he got to the NFL. And his, co- his DB coach in college was my DB coach in college as well. And we all knew he could always cover, man. So I'm not surprised at anything I see from him just because I knew about him in college. It's
0: been a fair amount of turnover in the secondary. Jamal Adams was new to the team last year. Shaquille Griffin, who been a veteran, he moves on to Jacksonville this year.
1: What's the personality of your, of your defensive backs room? What What's the personality it's taken on? Uh, the personality is still the same. You know, we're still all laughing, jokes, and when it's time to get serious, we get serious. Um, I don't think much has changed. You know, we all, we all love each other, and, you know, we all play for one another as well, which is the biggest thing.
2: Jamal Adams is somebody who seems to have an infectious personality, and while I I know right now things are being resolved between the Seahawks and him, but you still see him out there, and it feels like he is all over the place being the personal uh, mini cheerleader that everybody on this team needs to have. What's that personality like for you, and do you guys maybe struggle to match that energy that he's able to bring every single day?
1: Man, that's my dog, man. I'm telling you, that dude has a switch. Like, when you turn on your light, when you come in your room, I mean, as soon as he steps on that field, like, he's, his energy and his just swagger, all his confidence is through the roof, man. It's just like he sweats, he, he sweats too much, you know, being so jittery. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's my dog, man. I love him for the death. What does that mean for a team when you've got a guy like that? Oh, it means everything. I mean, he's going to cause some havoc, and that's, that's going to open up uh, plays for other people to make around him. <laughs> one of the things I like to ask, and this is appropriate given that we're talking about Jamal,
0: what is a defensive back like more, an interception or a sack?
1: I mean, you could take either one because those are hard to come by these days. <laughs> you you got you gotta one. Choose one Eagles, to choose one. you
0: you got to choose
1: one. If I had to choose one, I'm definitely taking the interception. Uh, that's me personally.
2: That's because you could probably run it back. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it's more than just the interception me, but for others it may be different. But, yeah, I you know what I would do. <laughs>
0: you want the ball in your hands. Hugo. Yeah. it's gr- it's great to talk with you. We're looking forward to watching not only how you compete throughout training camp but what happens in this upcoming season. And thanks so much for joining us Thanks, Hugo. I
1: appreciate you all. You all have a blessed day. All
0: right. That is Ugo Amadi, a member of your Seahawks secondary. Our Seahawks training camp coverage is brought to you by Precore Home Fitness. We've got Brock Hewer joining us next, and we'll have some questions to ask him, starting with which injury should we be most worried about? That's ahead.